Good evening, and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, January 6, 2022. I am so grateful that you have decided to join us tonight, and I really appreciate every single one of you who is here, gives us the opportunity to study together. I've been looking forward to this, and I thank you very, very much. In last week's Torah portion, the Parsha Ve'era, God tells Moshe to perform miracles before Paro, to demand that Paro let the Jewish people leave Egypt. And God says to Moshe, in last week's Parsha, Va'ani akshe eslev Paro, I will harden Paro's heart, so he will not relent, even in the face of devastating plagues, until the final tenth plague, which is in our parsha, the parsha of Bo. We find similar language from God in Paro's response to plague number six at the end of last week's parsha, and in our Torah portion this week, connected to plague number eight and plague number 10. Now, there are two different phrases. Usually, they're translated the same as both meaning the hardening of Paro's heart, but one phrase that we find is, Vayechazak Hashem eslev Paro, translated as, God hardened Paro's heart. The other formulation of this is, Va'ani hichbaditi es libo. I, now the literal translation of this would be weighed down, made heavy, but translated as hardened. God says, I hardened Paro's heart to have him refuse velo shalach b'nei Yisrael. And therefore, because I, God, hardened his heart, he did not allow the Jews to leave Egypt until the end of the 10th plague. That wording leads to two very difficult classic questions that have been discussed by our commentators for centuries. The first question is, if God caused Paro to refuse, it was not Paro's choice. And if it was not Paro's choice, then Paro does not bear any responsibility for refusing. So how could Paro be punished for not allowing the Jews to leave Egypt? It wasn't his choice. God made him do it. And the second question is, why is that language that we find in connection with plague number six and eight and ten different than the language that we find in last week's portion concerning the first five plagues, one through five? Because in plagues one through five, the Torah clearly says that it was Paro's choice, not God. For example, after the first plague, the plague of Dam, 
all the water in Egypt turned to blood? The Torah says, Vayechezak lev paro. Paro hardened his own heart. Velo shama alehem. And did not listen to allow the Jews to leave Egypt. So, all the commentators discuss this. It's been discussed, as I said, for centuries. And of course, there are many different answers to this. One answer, just to give you an example, given by the Rambam, Maimonides. The Rambam says that what happened later in the plagues, where God hardened Paro's heart, was a punishment for what Paro had done in the earlier plagues, where he had hardened his own heart. In other words, Paro was stubborn of his own free will and would not allow the Jews to leave Egypt, even in the face of the first five plagues. God punished Paro and removed from Paro the ability to choose later, and that removal of free choice was actually a punishment. That's one answer. Porno, another classic commentator, gives a different answer. Remember the words that I read to you, Vayechezak Hashem Eslev Paro. Now that, I told you that we often translate that as God hardened Paro's heart, but in fact, a more literal translation, the word comes from the word Chazak, to be strong, to strengthen. And Siporno explains that what actually happened in these later plagues is that God strengthened Paro's heart to be able to withstand the pressure of the plagues and to choose freely not to allow the Jews to leave. Because, I mean, you understand, I mean, these plagues were terrible. I mean, even the first five, these are horrible, terrible, tragic plagues. This is similar to the idea that many support that under torture, a person will say anything. A person will do anything under torture. The idea was to allow Paro to retain his free choice, his free will, even in the later plagues. Under normal circumstances, it would have been as if he was being tortured and he would have not been able to choose. God strengthened his heart to give him the ability to freely choose to continue in his wicked ways and be stubborn and not let the Jews leave. That's Siporna. But you'll notice the common denominator of these two and other explanations is how difficult it is for our commentators to grapple with this idea that for some reason, free will is taken away from someone. Because that goes against everything that we understand about Jewish beliefs. It is a fundamental Jewish belief. One of the Yud Gimel Ikrim, one of the 13 fundamental principles of faith, as the Rambam Maimonides describes them, and we're going to come back to this later, a belief that every single human being has the freedom to choose between good and bad under any circumstance. And the Rambam explains the reason this is so fundamental is because if a person does not have free choice, 
If a person's actions are determined or by fate or outside of conscious choice making, then what's the point of commandments? What's the point of prohibitions? A person's just going to act the way they're going to act. They're not choosing it. And if that would be the case, that there's no point to reward and punishment. Why reward a person for doing something if they didn't choose to do it? And why punish a person? It wasn't their fault. But Rabbi Jonathan Sachs points out that this assertion of man's free will has become more problematic in modern times through the accumulation of challenges against it. Karl Marx famously said, history is formed by economic forces. Freud argued, we act based on unconscious drives. Recently, neuroscientists have shown through advanced scanning that our brain can register a decision before we're even consciously aware of it. And we're learning today how patterns of behavior, as they are repeated, can become part of the architecture of the brain. For example, through addiction. So that the more often we behave in certain ways, the harder it is to break the habit. And according to Rabbi Sachs, we now have a modern scientific way of explaining the hardening that is taking place in Paro's heart. Because having established the pattern of response at the beginning of refusing to allow the Jews to leave, it progressively becomes more and more difficult to change. And this is true for every habit, for everyone. Almost all of our structures, mental structures, social structures, reinforce previous patterns. And therefore, our freedom diminishes every time we fail to exercise it. In other words, freedom is not a given and it is not absolute. We have to work for it. And we can lose it as Paro lost his, as God forbid a drug addict loses their freedom to choose. And the practical application of this for us is that at the very beginning of an endeavor, of a fork in the road, we need to have the mindset that pauses before any significant action and allows us to ask ourselves, should I do this? May I do this? We need to have an internalized narrative 
a narrative of self-identity so that we can ask of ourselves before beginning any course of action, is this who I am? And is this what I stand for? Because the beginning matters. Once we start moving in a certain direction, the window of opportunity for redirecting our path becomes smaller and smaller. So while God is acting here to keep Paro resolute against permitting the Jews to leave, what is really happening is this is an extension of Paro's own early resistance to doing the right thing that becomes habituated and harder and harder to change. Keshet Starr is a woman I know. She lives in New York. She's the director of an organization called ORA, O-R-A, Organization for the Resolution of Agunot. And Aguna is a woman who, a Jewish woman who is married, and the marriage has dissolved. Perhaps there's even a secular divorce, but the husband refuses to grant a get, a Jewish divorce. Sometimes the wife refuses, but most of the time it's the man, the husband, that refuses. And in that case, the woman is aguna, chained, anchored to a relationship. She's not able to remarry. She's not able to get on with her life, but she doesn't have the support and comfort of a marriage. She's in limbo, and it's a horrible, terrible, terrible thing. And ORA is an organization that works to assist women who find themselves in this tragic situation to be able to get a get a Jewish divorce. Keshet Starr is the director. She's a person that I admire very, very much. I work with her often. And I want to share with you something that she wrote a number of years ago. Because she sees the causes and the consequences of intractable and unreasonable stubbornness every day. That's her job. What happens often is there's a situation where a spouse, let's say the husband, because that's mostly who it is, becomes stubborn, refuses to give his wife a get, refuses to release the other person from this marriage, which is really no longer a marriage, except technically. And in the very difficult cases, cases that Ora deals with, cases that I deal with, it can take months. It could take years. And person after person will approach this stubborn spouse with one incentive and another incentive and another attempt to persuade them to cooperate and give the get and move on. But they don't. Their hearts are hardened. And so the work of Ora, the work that Keshet Star does, is to try to figure out why their heart is hardened and how to unlock that heart.
and she writes based on her experience, that she emphasizes, as I do, the importance to encourage that a couple that realizes their marriage cannot continue, that there's no hope of salvaging the marriage, that as soon as that happens, a get, a Jewish divorce, should be given and received. Not at the end, not later, not after the secular divorce is, con is, is completed, which could take years under certain circumstances. It should be done as soon as the decision is final. Because over time, person's heart becomes harder and harder and more and more intractable. And as time goes on, the window for change, the window for being reasonable, the window for being cooperative becomes smaller. Now, psychologists discuss this phenomenon using the term sunk costs. Sunk cost means that once I have already invested time or money or energy in a certain path, I become much more resistant to changing that path, even when the logic would dictate that I do change, but the more energy I put into the path, the more resistant I am to change that path. I'll give you an example, and it's a trivial example, but, but it will demonstrate. Let's say you go to the post office. You want to mail a package. Normally, you go to the post office, you wait in line, maybe five minutes, and you mail your package. One day you go to the post office. You're waiting in line, and it's taking a lot longer. You're waiting in line five minutes. You're waiting in line 10 minutes, 15 minutes. You're waiting in line 20 minutes, and you're still not at the head of the line. Now, logically, unless this package is absolutely urgent, logically, it makes sense to leave. Because why spend an hour on a task that normally should, spend should take five minutes? It's a waste of time, logically. But internally, what happens is, I think to myself, I've already spent 20 minutes here. I can't leave now. It's a trivial example, but it just demonstrates how hard it is to reroute our path, how easy it is to fall into the trap of continuing the path that we started, no matter how little sense it makes. That's why, just coming back to the subject of Agunah for a moment, that's why a halachic prenup is so important. A halachic prenup is a document that a couple signs before they get married. And it's a document that is a secular law binding document that says, God forbid, in the case that our marriage should fail, we agree to give and receive a get according to Jewish law. Executing such a document is required by many, many rabbis in order to officiate at a marriage. I am proudly one of those rabbis who insists 
on a halachic prenup. And the reason it's so important is because if God forbid the marriage should fail, and if God forbid one of the spouses should be recalcitrant, that document would be valid in a secular court to help ensure that a get is done. But that's not the main purpose. The main purpose, the main accomplishment of the halakhic prenup is that it makes the decision at the beginning, before the marriage even starts, that get refusal is simply inconceivable. And once that original decision has been made, it's easier, if it should be necessary, to follow through on what the decision was at the beginning, when the document was signed, and not revert to a path of stubbornness. If the story of Paro teaches us anything, it teaches us the difficulty of changing positions mid-course and the challenge of evaluating our decisions honestly early in the course of conflict and turmoil in order to retain our freedom of choice. Because without it, we are missing God's purpose for our lives. Obviously, uh, I was not given the task, the assignment to write the book of Exodus, uh, Sefer Shmos, the second book of the Torah. But if I would have been given that task, I would do it the same way. <laughs> the story is told especially the Exodus narrative from the beginning of the book of Shemos through our Torah portion and even next week's Torah portion in a manner that is literally, in a literary sense, magnificent. There's suspense. There's drama. Remember, God appears to Moshe at the burning bush and gives him this mission to leave the Jews out of Egypt, gives him miracles to perform, tells him to go to Paro. Moshe goes to Paro. Paro refuses and makes things worse and increases the labor. Moshe starts performing these plagues, which would seem to be the end of the story. How could you withstand the pressure of, of these plagues? But again, by the end of last week's portion, they seemingly have no impact. Nothing has changed. In fact, things have only gotten worse. Finally, finally, after the suspense of thinking it's going to get better and actually getting worse, one step forward and two steps back, finally in our Torah portion, the Jewish people leave Egypt. Okay. Cliffhangers, suspense, drama, I get it. But why does God do it that way? Why is it that in the unfolding of the narrative, it keeps looking like it's going to get better, but then it gets worse, 
before it actually gets better. Why is that the pattern? So there are a number of answers. To that one answer is that this is what establishes for us the pattern of our history. The Exodus from Egypt is a primary event in Jewish history. The details of that experience cause and define our values and our attitudes and our understanding of the unfolding of our own history. That's the reason that we so frequently invoke the memory of Exodus. The phrase, Zecher Lietzias Mitzrayim, we're doing this action, this ritual, this mitzvah, to commemorate, to remember the Exodus from Egypt. How often do we say that? Every day, every Friday night at Kiddush. So many times during the year, we're always referring back to this event. Why? Because it contains the central message of our history. And what is that message? Well, I think it was expressed best by Bob Dylan when he sang, they say the darkest hour is right before the dawn. We have to see it over and over again throughout our history. In every era, again and again, the same pattern. And what it teaches us is to have faith in tomorrow. If you persevere, even when things are rough, you are showing faith that tomorrow can be better. In other words, the message is Mashiach, the Messiah, the Messianic era, the message that our exile, our turmoil, will end in redemption. Now, that belief that we assert that there will be a Mashiach, there will be a Messiah, a Messianic era, is one of the Yud Gimel Ikrim, the 13 fundamental principles of faith that I mentioned before by Maimonides. According to Maimonides, a person cannot consider themselves a religious Jew unless they adhere to and believe in those 13 beliefs. And one of them is that there will be a Mashiach, that Mashiach will come. Different groups of Jews have different ways of describing this, different emphases they place on it. But what I want to share with you now is my understanding of what the classic normative sources say about this topic. What does Mashiach mean? First, it means that in the future, we hope soon, but in the future, sometime in the future, a person will come and transform the world, bring about peace, 
bring about religious freedom for Jews to be able to practice our beliefs and, and, and religious practices freely anywhere in the world, rebuild the Beit HaMikdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, introduce an era of spirituality and awareness of God's presence. That's what will happen when Mashiach comes. That's what we know. What we don't know is who it will be, when they will come, and what life will be like after that happens. Will it be a miraculous existence where there's no more pain, there's no more suffering, there's no more hunger? Or will it be mostly normal life? You have to brush your teeth. You have to check your tires. You have to go to the doctor. It's just that there'll be world peace and a rebuilt Beit HaMikdash, but basically normal life. Okay, so we don't know any of those details. And those details are not important. Whatever God wants it to be, when it happens, we'll see it, and that's what the details would be. The Iker the fundamental belief that we have to have is that it will happen. There will be a person who will be the Mashiach and it will happen. Details I don't have to worry about. This belief is expressed in one of its famous expressions with a famous line that begins with the words anima amin. I believe I believe with a full belief, with full faith, in the coming of Messiah. I believe it will happen in the future. Okay. I believe it. But the question to ask is, why is that belief and Ikar, why is it fundamental? Why is it a prerequisite for me to believe that now? I mean, it's a belief about something that will happen in the future. Why isn't it enough simply to say, this is true? It's true. And when it happens, you'll see it. I mean, there is not a it's not one of the 13 principles of faith to believe that I have to observe Shabbos. It's a mitzvah. I know I'm obligated to observe Shabbos. It doesn't have to be a fundamental belief. It's simply a fact. So let it be a fact. Why? Especially, it's not really practically relevant. It's a belief that something's going to happen. It's like saying, I believe that tomorrow it's going to snow. Okay, Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. But I mean, why does that affect me now? So that's the first half of the line. I believe that it will happen in the future. But there's a second part. The second half of this phrase. The afal pi yisma mea im And even though he tarry every day, I will anxiously await his coming. Now let's understand that part. 
because that part is not directed to the future, right? The first part, I believe that in the future, Mashiach will come. So that's, I believe something's going to happen in the future. But now we turn to the present. Right now, today, I am required to be anxious awaiting Mashiach to come every day. That's got to be an anxiousness on my part every day. Why should that be? I mean, again, when it happens, it will happen. Until it happens, how is it relevant to me? Why should it be a preoccupation of me, of mine, now? The reason is because today I must be aware to have faith in tomorrow. Today, I have to realize that history is not circular. It's linear and it leads from despair to redemption. There is a goal towards which we are working and we are not there yet. And this anticipation gives meaning and purpose to now, not just when the Mashiach ultimately arrives. That's why it's an ikka. That's why it is a fundamental of belief now, because it's central to how we live now, to live with the awareness that it will get better, that there will be a redemption. It's central to how we as Jews view the world and view our history. So that no matter what we're going through, slavery and persecution in Egypt, expulsion from Spain, the Holocaust, we know with a certainty there will be a redemption. There will be a brighter tomorrow. And therefore, this belief in Mashiach defines what it means to be a Jew. Just as in the Exodus from Egypt, it took place only after darkness and suffering, so too will the pattern be repeated for us. I think it was expressed best by Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who once said, surrender to despair is surrender to evil. And that's why for all time and every day, the exodus from Egypt is the primary event in our Jewish lives. On December 7th, 1941, Private Louis Schleifer from Newark, New Jersey, was at Pearl Harbor. And when he saw the Japanese aircraft flying overhead and dropping bombs on U.S. Navy ships and sailors, 
he immediately took his helmet and his revolver and he started firing at the Japanese planes. He was hit by gunfire and he was killed. And there were other Jewish casualties at Pearl Harbor along with the rest of the brave men and women who lost their lives that morning. Several months later, there was a memorial service for Private Schleifer. And one of the speakers was Senator Charles McNary from Oregon. And listen to what he said. Jews have been fighting oppression and tyranny for centuries. They received their basic training in Egypt and became seasoned soldiers on the battlegrounds of Europe. Wherever tyranny threatens, wherever the rights of man are in danger of being destroyed, there you will find the Jew, joining forces with others willing to fight and die for freedom and dignity. In 1963, there was a conference in Chicago, and it was there that Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel first met Reverend Martin Luther King. Both of them were speakers at this conference titled Religion and Race. And here is how Rabbi Heschel began his speech, drawing a direct line from Exodus to fighting for civil rights. He said as follows. At the first conference on religion and race, the main participants were Paro and Moshe. Moshe's words were, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go that they may serve me. While Paro retorted, who is God that I should heed his voice and let the Jewish people go? I do not know God, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. The outcome of that summit meeting has not come to an end. Paro is not ready to capitulate. The exodus began, but it is far from having been completed. In fact, Remember, this is 1963. In fact, it was easier for the children of Israel to cross the Red Sea than for a Negro to cross certain university campuses. Now, clearly, we are taught to understand the exodus from Egypt and to put it to use, not just as a recollection of a historical event, but as a directive for ongoing responsibility and effort. Five times in the Torah, our experience in Egypt is specifically used by God as the basis of obligating us to work continually now on behalf of the rights of others. For example, one of the five examples reads, this is a verse later in the book of Shemos, the ger lo silchatz, do not oppress the ger, the stranger, the foreigner, 
the one who has been mistreated. Do not oppress that person. Because you know what is in that person's soul. Because you were a ger. You were oppressed in Egypt. We Jews know what it's like to be persecuted. We know what it's like to be deprived of civil rights. We know what it's like to be despised and humiliated. And because we experience that in Egypt, God obligates us to help make sure it doesn't happen to others today. Even in one of the five passages towards Egyptians, even if at one time they were our enemies and they persecuted us, even then, we have a special obligation, which is at the heart of our momentous experience of exodus from Egypt, not only to never engage in belittling or mistreating blacks or any other minority, but to actively stand by their side in our shared fight for justice and dignity. Rabbi Joachim Prince was a rabbi first in Germany, and then he came to the United States. He was a rabbi in New Jersey. He was one of the organizers in 1963 of the March on Washington. That's the event at which Martin Luther King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. In perhaps the worst mazel possible for any public speaker, Rabbi Prince was the speaker just before Martin Luther King. Can you imagine what it must be like to give your all to make a speech and then to have a man come after you that gives a speech that is perhaps the most well-known and revered speech in all of American history? Not many people remember Rabbi Prince's speech, but it was quite magnificent. Here's just a short passage of what he said that day. When I was the rabbi of the Jewish community in Berlin under the Hitler regime, I learned many things. The most important thing that I learned under those tragic circumstances was that bigotry and hatred are not the most urgent problem. The most urgent, the most disgraceful, most shameful, and the most tragic problem is silence. If we, you and I, are not speaking up loudly and forcefully on behalf of the civil rights and equality of others today, now, we are not living up to what God tells us the exodus is supposed to mean for us. We are not living up to what religion is supposed to mean for us according to God. 
I think we can do better than we are doing. And therefore, we must. I have one last piece to share with you. And that is that in our portion this week, the Parsha Bo, animals play a surprisingly substantial role in the narrative of our Parsha. Torah says as follows, in describing the actual leaving of the Jews from Egypt, the Torah says in our Parsha, Ulechol B'nai Yisrael, as the Jews were marching out of Egypt, Lo Yecherat Kelev L'Shono, not a single dog barked. Lamantedun, Asher Yafle Hashem Be Mitzrayim Yisrael. It was like a supernatural phenomenon that made clear and open that God had differentiated the children of Israel from the Egyptians, allowing the Jews to go free. The dogs didn't bark. Usually dogs bark. This time they didn't bark. There's a verse later in the Torah. Actually, we're going to read it in the Parsha in two weeks. The Parsha Mishpatim. The Torah is talking about non-kosher food. We're not allowed to eat non-kosher food. Non-kosher meat. If there's meat that's not kosher, we're not allowed to eat it. So what do you do with it? Well, you do whatever you want with it as long as you don't eat it. Says the Torah, non-kosher food, non-kosher meat, lo sochelu, do not eat it. La kelev tashlichinoso, give it to your dog. Now, that's kind of a strange thing to say. I mean, you could give it to your cat. You could give it to any animal. You could do anything that you want with it. Why does the Torah choose this example? Give it to your dog. Our rabbis say, small print. Our rabbis say, This comes to teach us, God does not withhold reward from any creature. Every good deed is rewarded. As the verse says, When the Jews were leaving Egypt, the Torah says, not a single dog barked. God says, they must be rewarded. God's have, dogs have to be rewarded. So, if they did not bark and they deserve a reward, if you have non-kosher food, give it to your dog. Treat your dog well. Okay, that's kind of interesting. But then there's another verse in our Torah portion about a different animal. At the end of our portion this week, the Torah talks about the importance of the firstborn. 
the firstborn of the Egyptians were killed. And because of that, all other firstborn are wholly consecrated to God. And the Torah says, Call Peterechem Lashem. Every firstborn is holy to God. That applies to animals. The firstborn of an animal is holy and must be given and treated like it is kadosh, sanctified, sacred, holy. And it applies to a person, to a baby boy. The firstborn baby boy is holy and must be redeemed, pidyon haben, the redemption of the firstborn. And the chal peter chamar tifte, every firstborn donkey is holy and must be redeemed. Now, that is very, very strange because as a general rule, Kedusha, sanctity, only applies to things that are kosher. A kosher animal, a cow, a sheep, a, a, a goat, can be offered as a sacrifice. It can be sacred. It can be elevated in holiness. But it only applies to kosher animals. There is no non-kosher animal. There's no sanctity in a dog or a cat or a monkey or a anything. There's only one exception to that rule, and that's a donkey. A donkey, firstborn donkey, is holy. Why? Of all the animals that should be holy, why is it the donkey? So Rashi says in our Torah portion, it's because Shasiu es Yisrael b'yitzias Mitzrayim. When the Jews left Egypt, they had lots of stuff. Who carried all that stuff? They've been there for hundreds of years and they're never coming back. Who slept all the stuff that the Jews had and took with them? Rashi says it was donkeys. The donkeys slept the stuff for the Jewish people. And as a reward for the donkey's service in facilitating the exodus of the Jewish people from Egypt, God made this tremendous exception to the rule that donkeys can be holy. The only non-kosher animal. Okay. So there's a great rabbi about a hundred years ago, Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zunnenfeld, and he asked the following question. Why don't dogs have sanctity. We just finished this whole lesson about the dogs that were rewarded because they were silent when the Jews left. They didn't bark, so they were rewarded. Well, if, if you're rewarding dogs, why not reward them the same way that you're rewarding donkeys, right? You're rewarding dogs and you're rewarding donkeys. So you're rewarding donkeys with holiness. You're rewarding dogs by give them meat, Okay, maybe the dog prefers to have the meat. That I don't know. But listen to the answer Rabbi Zunnenfeld gives. What did the dogs do that deserve reward? They kept quiet. What did the donkeys do to deserve reward? 
They slept. They exerted effort. Putting your shoulder to helping someone else is a higher level of spirituality, of accomplishment, than merely keeping quiet. Not barking is very nice. And it's why the dogs were rewarded with getting the non-kosher meat. Putting in the effort and doing the work, carrying the burden, that's a much higher level of investment. And that's why donkeys receive the reward of a higher level of sacredness, of holiness. We express this with the phrase, lefum tsara agra, according to the effort you put into doing a mitzvah, the more reward you will get. And what that teaches us, and what this lesson means to teach us, is that we should try not just to do the minimum, not just to slide by with the easiest task, but to put our shoulder into it, to exert effort, to try to do it maximally if this is how we're serving God. So I want to show this to you. I'm going to finish in just a couple of minutes. I want to show this to you. In what is for me, and I hope it will be for you, an unforgettable manner. And it comes from football. Last week, John Madden died. I don't know if you know who that is. If you love football, I'm pretty sure you know who that is. I feel, like so many others, that Madden personified football as a player, as a coach, and as a TV announcer for many, many years. I grew up watching football where the, where the games were announced by John Madden, as many of us did. And most of all, he was football's ambassador to the world. John Madden loved football. He shared that passion with everyone he came into contact with. Now, those who know him only from television may not remember that he was, before that, a coach. And what he brought to broadcasting that was kind of unique was a coach's perspective on the competitive nature of the game, the quality of the game. Because a coach's primary job is to prepare a team physically, strategically, and emotionally to have the best opportunity to win, to work at their highest potential. That's the goal of a coach. And that view is what John Madden brought to his love of football. So what I want to share with you is something that was written by Tom Coughlin. Now, at the time that this story took place, Tom Coughlin was the coach of the New York Giants. It was in 2007. And Tom Coughlin received a phone message from John Madden that he never forgot and says he never will forget. Let me set the scene for you. 
it was the end of the season, which means it's about this time of year, right? middle January. The New York Giants had already secured their playoff spot. So they're in the playoffs no matter what happens. They have one last season game. The last game was against the New England Patriots, the best football team at that time. And leading up to this game, there was a lot of discussion because a lot of people thought that it would not make sense to risk the best players in this game because this game isn't going to count. They're still going to go to the playoffs, whether they win or lose. Why risk your best players who might get injured and not be available for the playoffs in this game that doesn't count? So there was a lot of discussion. Maybe they'll just play the second stream players, second stream string players in this game. Coughlin decided he was going to use the starting players, the star players, and he was going to play to win. He was going to play like it was the beginning of the season, all or nothing. We're going out there to do our best. We're going to win. They lost the game, 38-35. to 35. Coughlin writes, I will never forget walking into my office at 5 a.m. the next morning after losing and listening to the voicemail message that was waiting for me from John, John Madden. And here's the message that John left for Coughlin that morning. John said, just called to congratulate you and your team for a great effort last night. Not good, but great. I think it is one of the best things to happen to the NFL in the last 10 years. And I don't know if they all know it, but they should be very grateful to you and your team for what you did. I believe so firmly in this, that there is only one way to play the game. And it is a regular season game and you go out to win the game. I'm just so proud of being a part of the NFL and what your guys did and the way you did it. You proved that it's a game and there's only one way to play the game and you did it. The NFL needed it. We've gotten too much of, well, they're going to rest their players and don't need to win. Therefore, they won't win. Well, that's not sports and that's not competition. I'm a little emotional about it. I'm just so proud of you. Okay, so it's about football, yes. But it's even more true for mitzvahs, for serving God. Don't just do enough to slide by. Give it your best effort. Because the more we put into a mitzvah, the more we get out of it. So, please don't take this the wrong way. But in the context of our Parsha, it's good to be like the dog, but it's much better to be like the donkey. My friends, I want to wish you a great evening and a beautiful Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.